0: Amen. Thank you, Luke and the rest of the music team this morning for leading us in worship through song. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Last Lord's Day, we began our study in Mark's gospel. We looked at chapter 1, verse 1, and my wife said to me after the sermon, after studying just one verse last Lord's Day, this is going to be a long sermon series. And I said, no, we, we just needed to camp out on verse one because we needed to see the glory of the gospel, even what we just sang about. We needed to see why Mark was transformed, why he feels an urgency to write. And we needed to see why the man that we're going to look at this morning had such a desire to share the message that he shared. So we had to camp out on that first verse. Don't worry, not all other sermons are going to be that short of a section. And this is Mother's Day, and typically at CBC we just keep going through whatever the sermon series is that we're going through, and that's what we're going to do this morning. But as we are considering the idea of Mother's Day, I do believe that there is an application for moms in this text that we will study this morning. And I believe that it, it could be best summed up with the question that I think this text will answer as we go all the way through it and end our time this morning. The question is this. Moms, if you could have one wish come true for your kids just one, wave a wand over them, and it happens. What would it be? Just one wish for your kids, and it comes true, what would it be? Would it be to ensure that nothing bad ever happens to them? Maybe you want them to get a certain profession that they know that they will always have, so they'll be financially successful. Maybe it's Marrying the right person. You could pick that person. You could know who that person's going to be. I was talking to my boys this last week. Somehow we got on the topic of marriage and Tyler was asking me, why do people get married? We were talking about it. And over the course of the conversation, I said, can I help pick the person that you guys are going to marry one day? Would you like me to help you? I'd like to help you. I'd like to be involved. Can I help you? And Tyler said, no, I'll be fine. (laughs) I said, okay. And Ethan said, oh, I really want your help. It scares me to think that I have to find a stranger. This is what he said. I have to find a stranger, ask them to go on a date with me, and on that date, ask them to marry me. So he goes, can you please pick that person? I said, no, 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 no. No, they'll be your friend. They'll be your best friend. Don't worry, you'll be okay. To which Tyler said, it's easy. Ethan, just find someone who has a ring. (laughs) I asked, wait, what do you mean by that? He said, just if they have a ring, you can marry them. (laughs) What would your one wish be for your kids? I think that the text this morning will tell us what it should be. And I know that it is this wish for many of you here this morning. Let's read our text this morning. Mark chapter one, beginning in verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. These are the words of our living God. Let's ask him this morning to bless our time as he writes their truths on our heart. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege that we have of opening your word We confess that there are many Sundays that we gather, many Wednesdays and Thursdays, many mornings where we open your word and we settle into a routine and it's normal and our familiarity with your word has bred contempt and we beg of you that that would not be so this morning. There are many here in this room who could preach this text. There are many who know the reality of who John the Baptist is and what he was sent to do. And so it's very easy to say, I know this. And God, to come before you with such a hard heart, such a proud spirit, it will not accomplish anything that you desire to happen. In these moments. So, Father, we come before you and we beg that you would humble us, that you would help us to long to receive the nourishment of your word. We want to feast on Christ today. We are desperate beggars in need of bread, and you, the bread of life, are offering yourself to us this morning. So, we come to you and we plead with you to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Holy Spirit, do that amazing work, granting us the gift of illumination so that we could see, that we could behold, that we could see and savor that we would love Jesus more and that we would be used by you to point others to him. We ask it in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. After telling us that this book is all about Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark then goes straight to John the Baptist. And my question is, why? After beginning by saying, this is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he moves straight to John the Baptist. Why? Because remember, what is Mark trying to prove? He's writing this book to prove Jesus is the king, but not the kind of king that you and I thought he was going to be. We thought he was going to be a political ruler. We thought he was going to be this person who's going to come save us from our political oppressors. But he's not just that kind of a king. He is the son of God. He's going to conquer by being conquered. He's going to be victorious by being killed. And he's not just truly human. He is truly God at the exact same time. So if Mark's trying to prove to us that Jesus is a king, he is the Christ, right? That word Christ, the Hebrew form of that is Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And if you're a, a good Jewish reader of this book, when somebody says, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is the king, your next question will be, then where's his forerunner? Where's his herald? If you're claiming this man is the Messiah, I know that he has to have a forerunner. I know that he has to have a herald. Where's his herald? Who's his herald? And that's exactly why John The Baptist is highlighted next. Why does Mark go straight from Jesus to John? Because John is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And John the Baptist is going to point us as the herald and as the forerunner, John is going to point us this morning to three specific aspects of the goodness of God. Three different aspects of the goodness of God in John's ministry and in his message. Number one, John points to the trustworthiness of God. John the Baptist points to the trustworthiness of God. This is verses two and three. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Matthew begins his gospel by going to Abraham and the genealogy that follows. Luke begins his narrative by looking at John the Baptist, but then he moves to a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. John begins his gospel in eternity past, but Mark begins with the prophecies of the Old Testament. And by the way, this quotation of the Old Testament, aside from Jesus quoting the Old Testament in the Gospel of Mark, this is the only place that Mark refers to the Old Testament in his gospel. And he's going to put two different texts from the Old Testament together. He's going to put Isaiah and Malachi. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, together when he quotes, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. And I want to go to these two texts so that you can see them and see the reality of what they're proclaiming. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is written almost 800 years before Mark writes his gospel. Isaiah was the most famous of the prophets who wrote Elijah's the most famous of all the prophets, but he didn't write anything. So Isaiah is the most famous of all the prophets who wrote. And in Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse three, we read these words. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert, a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become plain. And let the rugged terrain become a broad valley. What is being stated here? There's going to be someone who's going to be a voice. that's going to shout out in the wilderness, the king is coming and we need to get the roads ready. That's why it says in verse 5, let every mountain be made low. So all the molehills in the road, let's make them flat so that he's not bumping on the, the way into the city. Let's take all of the potholes and fill them in with dirt. Let's make a, a smooth, straight road so that the king can come in and see the glory. And we can behold his glory and witness his majesty. I have some friends who live in England. And they've told me wherever the queen goes, now the king, but wherever the queen goes, she smells fresh paint. Wherever she's going, they're cleaning it up before she gets there to make sure it's beautiful so that she can say, ah, look at this beautiful place. That's exactly what's being said here. There's going to be somebody who's going to show up before the king comes, before Messiah shows up, and he's going to clear the way. But he's not going to do it in a sense of clearing a road. He's going to pave the roads of our hearts and make us ready for the gospel. And Mark is quoting this section of Isaiah. And by the way, this chapter in Isaiah is a massive chapter of hope, speaking of God, not leaving his people to their own devices, but coming to them, not waiting for them to come to him, but God coming to his people. The whole point of this latter half of Isaiah is hope is being promised and God will come to his people. And Mark is telling us hope has come because God has come. Emmanuel is here, God with us. So the the first quotation is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The second quotation is from Malachi. So turn to Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 3, we have the second part of this quotation that that Mark gives us about John's ministry. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger... And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So a messenger will come. A herald will come. A forerunner will come. It's like that guy with that, the big long trumpet that has the little sign next to it. And he goes, da-da-da-da, hear ye, hear ye, right? That's the job of the herald. There is a king And he is on his way, and we need to get ready for him. Now, who is this herald going to be? Turn one chapter over, Malachi chapter four. Malachi chapter four, verse five. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. I'm going to send you Elijah. I'm going to send you Elijah. So the herald is going to be Elijah. And we're going to find out that that means Elijah-esque in the spirit and power of Elijah. Again, Isaiah was the most famous of the prophets he wrote, but Elijah is the most famous of all the prophets. He just didn't write a book. That's why when, remember the Mount of Transfiguration, you have Moses and Elijah. Elijah is the embodiment of all of the prophets. He shows up to speak with Jesus Even today at a Passover Seder, you have a chair that's empty for Elijah because before Messiah comes, Elijah has to come. The forerunner will be Elijah and he has to show up to announce the coming of the Messiah. That's why, by the way, in John chapter 1, you remember when John the Baptist is baptizing and he says he's the herald, the religious leaders uh, go to John and they say, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm John. They're asking, are you the Elijah type figure? And he says, no, 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 my name's John. My name's not Elijah. That's what they're asking. That's why, by the way, turn back to Mark. Go back to Mark chapter one. Very obscure verse, very strange, seemingly out of place verse. In verse six, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Why does he include this? Why does Mark tell us these things? There's a lot of reasons why. But one of the reasons why is because 2 Kings chapter 1, verse eight, you can just write it down. We don't have time to turn there. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse eight tells us that this is exactly what Elijah looked like. This is what he wore. So the diet and the wardrobe of John matches the diet and the wardrobe of Elijah. Elijah was a hairy man who wore a leather belt. 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8 says, This is what was worn by the prophets. So much so that Zechariah chapter 13 verse 4 says that false teachers and false prophets would dress up to look like this so that they could say, Look, I'm in the lineage of Elijah. So Mark is trying to prove to us, John the Baptist perfectly fits every aspect of, Of the ministry of what the herald to the Messiah is supposed to do. One last passage to turn to. Turn over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, this is the announcement that Gabriel gives to Zacharias about his son, John the Baptist, before he's born. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It is he, the son of Zacharias, John the Baptist, who will go as a forerunner before him, before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist is pointing today to the reality that God is trustworthy because he is The fulfillment of this Elijah prophecy. He's the fulfillment of the forerunner prophecy, of the herald prophecy, of the Elijah prophecy. He is the fulfillment of all of it. And here's why that's important for you and for me today. It had been 400 years of silence. God had made the promise in Malachi that the forerunner was going to show up in the spirit and power of Elijah. And 400 years went by and nothing happened. Brothers and sisters, do you feel like God is slow to work and to act? Do you feel like there's a promise that you're waiting for, for God to accomplish in your life? And you're pleading with him and you're saying, God, you promised this would happen. When will you make this happen? Maybe you're waiting for provision. You know, Matthew 6 has said that God will provide for your needs. He will take care of you. And you're saying, God, where is it? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's money. And you're saying, God, you promised. Maybe you feel alone. Hebrews 13, God has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. He will always be with you. And maybe you're struggling to believe that he is trustworthy when he made that promise. Maybe you're struggling to believe that in some interpersonal conflict that you're going through, that he will be your judge. He will be your defender. Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And you're saying, God, when? When will you rise up and defend me? Maybe you're struggling to believe that the trial you're going through, the suffering you're going through is actually accomplishing something for your good that God promised in Romans 8, 28 and 29. Maybe you're here this morning and you are struggling to believe that God actually loves you and has actually forgiven you. You're struggling to believe, could it be possible that my sins actually are removed as far as the east is from the west? Psalm 103. John the Baptist is here this morning to point to the reality that when God makes a promise, he will keep that promise. Amen? He will keep that promise. He kept it in John the Baptist as the forerunner, and it took a long time. It wasn't on the time frame that anyone would have wanted, but God made it happen. John the Baptist points to the trustworthiness of our God. John the Baptist, number two, points to the nature and necessity of repentance. John the Baptist points to the nature and necessity of repentance. This is verses four through six. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So verse three, there's going to be one, the quotation from the Old Testament, there's going to be a guy that's going to show up in the wilderness as the herald. That's why verse four, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. So this guy's going to show up in the wilderness. He appears in the wilderness. Could this be the guy? And the first thing that you notice about John, for all of the crazy things about John, his diet, his wardrobe, all these different things, the first thing that, Mark tells us, is his message. It's his message. Summed up in one word, it is repent. Repent. Instead of clearing the roads physically, he's clearing the spiritual roads in our hearts, making us ready to receive Messiah. And he's pleading with the people to repent. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. What is repentance? The Greek word metanoia just literally means a change in your thinking. You used to think one way, and now you're thinking a different way. But it doesn't just stay in your thinking for it to be true repentance. It's a change in your thinking that leads to a change in your living. Think about what changes in repentance. I used to think that sin was fun, enjoyable, pleasurable, and there were no consequences to it. And now I've heard a message that says, actually, it's an offense against a holy God. And there are severe consequences to it and it leads to death. I used to think that this holy God didn't really care about me. I didn't really care about him. I thought he was kind of dumb and I wanted to be king in his place. Now I think he is the greatest reality in the entire world and I love him more than I love anything else. I used to think there's no way that he could ever love me based off of my sin against him, based off of my offense against him but it's the kindness of God that leads me to repentance. It's his kindness, not his wrath, not his judgment. It's the kindness of God that leads me to repentance. And as I see, oh, he does love me and he made a way for me to be saved so that I don't have to do anything. I don't have to earn any favor. I don't have to merit any righteousness. He does it all for me. Why would I not turn and cling to him? I used to think I had to be good enough. I used to think I had to try hard enough and now I know I could never be good enough. And that's why Jesus was perfect in my place. It's a change in your thinking that leads to a change in your living. And John is fearless in the way that he preaches this. He looks the religious leaders in the eye and he says, you are a brood of vipers. He looks at the Romans in the eye and he says, be content with your wages. Stop being greedy. And he's preaching and then he baptizes People. We're going to look at this in-depth next Lord's Day. But what is John doing when he's baptizing these individuals? What is bapti- baptism? And a lot of people would say, correctly so, that it symbolizes our being uh, crucified with Christ, buried in baptism, and raised to new- newness of life with him. Totally true, and that is a symbol that we are able to understand as we baptize people. But that would not have made any sense to people getting baptized before Jesus shows up because he hasn't been crucified, buried, or raised from the dead. So there's something else going on here. I think that you could very simply say baptism was an identification with the message that John was preaching. He preached a message and people are saying, I need that message. Again, we'll talk about this more next Lord's Day because Jesus is baptized, so it can't be that baptism actually cleanses you of sin because Jesus didn't need to be cleansed of sin. That's why, by the way, when it says, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it's not saying that when you are baptized, you are now forgiven. It's not to get forgiveness. It's because you've already been forgiven. Josephus actually says this in his commentary about who John the Baptist was. He says, John commanded the Jews... To exercise virtue, both to as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. And so to come to baptism, understanding that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. So you come to baptism knowing that your soul has already been purified beforehand by God. So what is John doing? There's a lot that he's doing. There's a lot that he's not doing, but there's a lot that he's doing here. But one of the things that he's doing, and this is staggering to the original recipients of this letter. Baptism, where did it come from? There's a lot of guesses as to where it came from. One of those guesses is there was a ritualistic purification that Jews would do. Number one, to purify themselves, such as priests or people in the temple. They would purify themselves in something called a mikvah. Um, they would go into this ritualistic bath. They'd purify themselves and it was ceremonial cleansing. And what the Jews would do is if any Gentile des- desire to be converted to Judaism, the Gentile would have to go through this ritualistic cleansing in a mikveh to be spiritually converted and have the symbol of being cleansed. But when John shows up, He doesn't tell Gentiles, you need to be ritualistically cleansed to become Jews. He says to everyone, including Jews, you need cleansing. This would have been staggering because he's calling the Jews to be baptized. And the Jews thought, because I'm a Jew, I inherit the kingdom just because of my ethnicity. And John is saying, no, your heart is not right with God. You are outside of the kingdom they presume they were righteous. They presume they were in, in the kingdom, inherited the kingdom. They were totally fine. And John says, no, you're not. So he pleads with them, turn, repent, and be baptized. Verse five, all the country of Judea was going out to him. All the people of Jerusalem were going to him. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins, confessing to say the same as. They were in agreement with what John was saying about their sins, It says, everyone's going out to him. Everyone's going to him. He is such a big deal. So much so that Josephus actually spills more ink about John the Baptist than he does about Jesus. People are coming from all over the place. He's cutting across all the lines, geographically, ethnically. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. You want to hear John. By the way, side note. I've had conversations with people in this section of Mark, who say, "Mm, that's an exaggeration, that didn't really happen. And how can we really trust that any of this happened? Just, again, just two minute rabbit trail. The reality of the gospels as eyewitness testimonies is staggering. The gospel writers were not literary experts. Think about it, a fisherman is writing. A tax collector, he's really good with numbers, but he's really bad with words. Mark, Luke, he's a doctor, but you can't read his handwriting, right? Doctors, you can never. So these are not literary experts. They're ordinary men writing down eyewitness testimony. The gospels were written 25 to 55 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. They appear in the lifetime of the people who saw and heard Jesus. This is so important. They appear in a time frame when the people reading these realities could say, that never happened, I was there, that didn't happen that way. They could confirm or deny the statements. One commentator says it this way, the survival of such folks must have set limits to the community's freedom to invent or embellish any narrative. Just think about it. If you're reading the book of Matthew, and it says Matthew was a tax collector and you lived and you knew, you lived in the time of Matthew, you knew Matthew and you were to say, yep, he was a tax collector. And then it says that he started to follow Jesus, was converted, became a totally new guy. And you're like, I know him. He's still a jerk. You would be able to deny that, right? You could either corroborate with it or say, no, 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 I I know him. He's not a nice guy. He was never converted. Or we knew Zacchaeus. Yes, he was a wee little man but he's still the same scoundrel and cheat that he was when he met Jesus and he died that way. You you would be able to say that. This isn't legend. In fact, turn to Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three. This is Luke's portion uh, dealing with John the Baptist. Luke chapter three, verse one. Tell me if this reads like a tall tale or a legend. Now in the 15th in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconius and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness and he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins." Why are all of those elements added? All of those names added? All of those places added? Because this is challengeable and verifiable data. So, side note done. Mark, when he's writing, he's writing an eyewitness testimony that is absolutely true, absolutely believable, and absolutely verifiable. And so when he says, everybody's going out, He's saying there isn't a region in Israel where people aren't leaving to go be with John. And where do they go? They go to the wilderness. I love this. Israel is once again going to the wilderness. As long, Israel long ago had been separated from Egypt by a pilgrimage through the waters of the Red Sea. And the nation now is being exhorted to experience that same separation by going through a second exodus into the wilderness. They're being prepared in the wilderness for a new covenant with their God. So John the Baptist points us to the trustworthiness of God. And I would plead with you, where are you struggling to trust, to wait, to be patient, to hope, and to rely on God's trustworthiness? But John also points us to the nature and necessity of repentance. Have you experienced that separation? Have you gone to the wilderness as it were? and separated yourself from sin, pleaded with Jesus to cleanse you? Have you confessed your sin? The people went out to John, they heard the message and they said, I agree with that. Do you agree with what God says about you? This is a difficult message to hear because God says you are hopeless on your own. God may very well be saying to you here this morning, the things that you love and value and treasure will lead to your death spiritually. And he's pleading with you, turn from sin and trust in me. John is pointing, pointing you to the nature and necessity of repentance. Have you repented? Have you turned to Jesus? Brothers and sisters, is there something in your life right now that you need to repent of? Have you been baptized? Not in order to be forgiven, but because you already have been forgiven. Have you been baptized to publicly proclaim I identify with the message of the gospel and Jesus has saved me. John points us to the trustworthiness of God. John also points us to the nature and necessity of repentance. John also points us, number three, to the glory of Jesus. Trustworthiness of God, nature and necessity of repentance and the glory of Jesus. This is verses seven through eight. John's a big deal. But he's going to say, here, I'm not a big deal. He is so famous that he's mentioned by Josephus. He's so famous that when Peter and Paul preach the message of the gospel, they always start with John. But compared to Jesus, John says, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. Verse 7, as he was preaching, he was saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I'm not even worthy to take off his sandal. The rabbis from back in John's day would say this. A Hebrew slave must not wash the feet of his master nor put on his shoes. That was beneath the dignity of a Hebrew slave. Another example from a rabbi. All services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher with the exception of untying his sandals. And John says, I'm below the people who do that. I'm not even up to the level of someone who could untie his sandals. Is that an exaggeration? (laughs) It seems a little too far, right? John, you might be a nobody, but you're not that much of a nobody. Just think about it in our context. We, we don't tend to talk this way of I shouldn't even untie your shoes. Uh, happy Mother's Day if you're a mom here. You're untying and tying shoes all the time, constantly. It's not beneath you. But just think of this. Somebody comes over to your house, goes to the bathroom, comes out and says, I am so sorry. Toilet's clogged. And you answer, I'm sorry, you're going to have to take care of that because I'm not even worthy to do that, right? I'm not worthy to help clean up this mess. <laughs> I think the person would say, no, no, you're definitely worthy. Come on, help me, please. But that's the idea here where you're saying that is so, even something so low and disgusting as that. You're saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. Why does John say that? Because John knows who he is and what he can and cannot do. He says, I baptize you with water, verse 8, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm just giving you a symbol, a picture of what he will actually do in reality. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is from a a whole host of Old Testament quotations. Isaiah 32, verse 15, the spirit will be poured out and your barren heart will become a fertile field. Isaiah 44, verse three, I will pour out my spirit on you and will bring blessing to you and your descendants. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 18 through 19, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, Joel chapter two, verse 28, says the same thing that the spirit will be poured out from on high, John is saying, I'm pointing you to the one who can do that. I can't actually do that. I can't really do what you need. The water is just an external picture of an internal reality. John compares himself to Jesus and falls woefully short of the glory of Christ. He says, Jesus is mighty God. I'm just a mere man. Jesus is exalted, I am unworthy. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I will only be able to do this with water. He's just saying, guys, don't get excited about me. Get excited about Jesus. I love this. John knows his place. He's a nobody compared to the somebody that he's pointing to. He's the best man pointing to the groom. He knows his place. When you go to a wedding, You're there to see the bride and the groom. You're not there to stare at the best man. He can do his jokes. He can say his toast, but make it quick because we want to stare at the bride and the groom doing their first dance together, right? We were not there for the best man. He knows his place. He's a voice called to shout. He's a finger called to point. And brothers and sisters, you and I are as well. This is such good news. We're nobodies. We are nobodies who have the privilege of pointing to somebody. We're nobodies. We're not the star of the show. We're the best man. We're pointing. That's why John says, he must increase. I must decrease. So can I ask you, how are you pointing? You are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you claim the name of Christ, you are pointing people. The question is, where are you pointing them and how are you pointing them? If you say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, people look to you to see what that means. What does it mean that Jesus is better than anything in this world? And you are pointing them with the way you talk to your kids, the way you talk to your spouse, the way you treat your neighbors, the way you work hard in your workplace. You are a pointer to the goodness and the kindness and the glory of Jesus. I think irony of ironies and glory of glories in this text is John says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. And Jesus, just a few, three and a half years later, is going to wash the feet of his disciples. God, very God, stooping down, basin in a towel, washing the feet of his disciples. So John points us to three amazing realities. Number one, the trustworthiness of God. Number two, the nature and necessity of repentance. And number three, the glory of Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. So, moms, what do you want for your kids? One wish. One wish. What is it that you want for your kids? I think as we look at John the Baptist, I want to be John the Baptist to my kids, to be a pointer to Christ in front of their eyes so that they would love him and see him and behold him and treasure him and value him more than anything in this world. What's the one thing that I want for my kids? I I don't care what job they get. I don't care who they marry. I don't care any of those things. If they love Jesus more than they love everything else, all of those things will fall into place. That's what I want. And as we said during the baby dedications, that's the one thing that I can't control. That's the one thing I want more than anything for my kids. And that's the one thing I have zero control over. I can't change their heart but we can be John the Baptist to our kids. John the Baptist is saying, I'm only giving you a picture of what Jesus alone can do in your hearts. So as we end this section on John, I want us to ask, what was John like and how can we be like him? Number one, John finds his identity and purpose in the word of God. Let's be like John. We find our identity and our purpose in the word of God. God tells us who we are. God tells us what our job is and we just do that. We don't need to go outside of that. This is who God says I am. That's my mission and I'm going to do it. He's called us to be ambassadors of Christ. That's our job. Let's do it. Number two, John the Baptist is focused and intentional. He has one message. He has one mission. He has one goal and he just goes after that. Can I just ask you, what is your goal? What is your mission? If I were to ask you, why are you breathing air? What's your answer? John could have answered so easily. I am called to point to Jesus. He's focused and intentional. Number three, he doesn't compromise. He doesn't compromise. He said it like it was, no matter what the outcome. In fact, spoiler alert, Mark chapter six, we're going to find out that he gets his head chopped off because he calls it like it is. He says sexual immorality is wrong and he's killed for it. But number four, he's humble as he preaches. I love this. He's not a jerk in the way that he's sharing the good news of the gospel, even the bad news of what sin demands, the punishment that we need to pay. When we get to Mark chapter six, I love how John is preaching out against Herod Antipas. And Herod says, I love listening to you. So he's calling him out saying, your sin condemns you to hell. And he goes, I can't wait to hear you say that again. I can't wait to be with you. So he doesn't compromise, but he's not mean spirited about it. He's humble. He's humble in appearance. He's humble in his home. He's humble in his diet. He's humble in his message. There's so much that Mark could have used to describe this man, but he just goes after all the crazy humble things that he does. The character that John has, the character of the messenger matches the nature of his message. John was living out the embodiment of his message. Nothing will make our words land more effectively than when they come from a heart that loves others. And the preacher of God's word, the ambassador of Christ, knows and understands how could God ever use me? I am a nobody. And they humbly go to others and share. I love the way Alistair Begg says it. The reason why people leave church thinking nothing about the gospel is because there is an absence of integrity, an absence of humility, an absence of authority, an absence of clarity, and an absence of urgency. They think, I don't think that guy cares about me, nor do I think he believes the message that he is preaching. Couldn't have said that about John the Baptist. Everyone knew they were cared for by John, loved by John, and they knew John believed the message he was proclaiming. Number five, John was faithful. So he finds his identity and purpose in the Word of God. He's focused and intentional, he does not compromise, he's humble. Number five, he's faithful. He keeps on sharing the message. No matter what happens, he just keeps on sharing. J.C. Ryle says, The principal work of every faithful minister of the gospel is to set the Lord Jesus fully before his people and to show them his fullness and his power to save. The next great work that he has to do is to set before them the work of the Holy Spirit and the need of being born again and inwardly baptized by his grace. These two mighty truths appear to have been frequently on the lips of John the Baptist, and it would be well for the church and the world if there were more ministers like him. Be faithful as you proclaim. And lastly, number six, he had a Christ-centered vision of everything. He was always pointing to Jesus. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. He knew his place and he just said, I want to get out of the way and I want you to see and savor Jesus are you like John? Moms and dads, are you like John to your kids? You and I will not be until we stare at the one that John is pointing us to. And if there is a forerunner, as Mark has told us that there is, proclaiming this message by introducing the story of Jesus using John, Mark is telling his readers that we too need to make a decision. John is pointing us to Christ and Mark is saying, you need to decide. Are you going to follow what John's saying? We need to make a decision as well. And if you're here this morning, like a good Jewish reader of Mark's gospel, and you would say, okay, you're claiming you know who the Messiah is, Mark. You're claiming it's Jesus. Where is his forerunner? Mark has just proved, oh, we've got him. He's John. He came in the spirit power of Elijah. Fulfillment of the forerunner passages. We've got the forerunner. Your next question might be, well, if there is a king and we've got his forerunner, when did the coronation happen? When was he crowned as king before all people around him to see he is the king? That's what we'll look at next week. God, thank you so much for this amazing gospel and the picture that we have of John the Baptist, the pointer that he is to us this morning. We so desire for those in our lives to see Christ. And so often, God, we need to ask forgiveness today. Because so often, we get in the way of them seeing Jesus. We take the name of our God in vain. We, we wear it. That's what that, that phrase means. Not, not speaking it. It includes that. But we actually wear it. We, we take up the name of God. We claim to be believers. We profess to be Christians. But we do so in vanity so often, so meaninglessly. We don't look any different than the world. We don't talk any different than the world. God, forgive us for the times that we, we just get in the way of the gospel. We want to be like John this morning. We want to point to Jesus. We want to be faithful. We want to be intentional. We don't want to compromise. We want to be humble. We want to be Christ-centered. We want to find our purpose in the scriptures and we want to live it out until our dying day. To preach the gospel and die and be forgotten. And know that forevermore, our rest is with Christ, our greatest treasure. God, we want to proclaim that even now as we sing. We must decrease. You must increase. You are great and greatly to be praised. Be pleased as we confirm these realities to our heart this morning as we sing. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.